16. I know your bulletin said Genesis 17. That was my mistake. It's actually Genesis 15, and we will eventually get to that place. We are starting a new series this morning. It's titled Together. And unlike most of our series, which go verse by verse through books of the Bible, this series is going to focus on our church covenant and the meaning of membership. We've never studied the covenant as a church, and we've never really given it, honestly, much of a prominent place in the life of the church. And by that I mean, like we teach about the meaning of membership in one session in one of our classes. We discuss why it matters in our membership interview. And we recite the covenant at the beginning of every membership meeting. But outside of what I would amount to a a couple, a handful of times, the elders don't believe that we have been clear enough or intentional enough about teaching what it means to be a part of a church. The value of such a series like this can't be overstated, especially in the place we find ourselves today. It could be argued that the recent events of this pandemic have revealed a lot about what people believe, what Christians believe, especially about their ecclesiology, which is a big word talking about what they think about the church. The need and desire to be a part of a local church has either grown exponentially during this time or diminished significantly. Our forced dependence is what I'm going to call it. Our forced dependence on all things digital has either accelerated our consumerism and made the local church more insignificant than ever, or our forced dependence on all things digital has revealed the emptiness of that virtual world and made the church more essential than ever. One or the other has happened in many people. If real-life connection in person no longer matters, then real membership likely matters even less. The elders of our church believe membership matters greatly. In fact, covenant membership is so important that we describe it as a lifelong pledge in our membership interviews, which sounds kind of weird. We don't mean a lifelong pledge to this church, but to the church. If you're not a member of a local church, then you are a Christian. We invite you, if you're gathering with us, to become a member of Restoration Road Church. And if not, if God should lead you elsewhere, then we encourage you to become a member of another church who preaches the same gospel that we do. We believe it's important. While we do not believe the Bible directly commands covenant membership, we do believe that it is near impossible to obey many of the commands of Scripture apart from covenant membership. Now, fewer and fewer people, I think, value membership because fewer and fewer people actually, I'm sorry, fewer and fewer churches value it. Perhaps the greatest reason people don't value covenant membership today is because we take the existence of churches for granted. And by that I mean there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of churches in our region. And as a result, we don't often ask the question, what is a church? Or more precisely, who is the church? 
While most everyone agrees the church is not a building, we hear that a lot, that it's a people, but what is it that makes that local people a church? Is it a shared confession? Is it a shared location? Is it shared leadership? It is a particular shared kind of ministry. Well, even though I think it includes many of those things, primarily it is a shared commitment. On the midst of what some are describing as the great exodus from the church, we can think of no better time to teach or to reteach about what it means to be a part of the church. So over the next 10 weeks, we intend to work through different parts of our membership covenant to teach the uncommitted and to reteach the committed. And each part is going to be taught through the exposition of a particular biblical text. But unlike most of our sermons, this morning is going to serve as a little bit of an introduction to the idea of covenant and the entire series. It's going to have a little more teaching than preaching. So I'd like to answer four basic questions this morning. First, what is a covenant? Second, where does such thing come from? Third, what is unique about a membership covenant? And fourth, why does a covenant matter? So let's begin with what is a covenant. Well, I think mostly out of ignorance, and I don't know what you believe about a covenant, so I'm not trying to pick on you if you end up believing some of the things that I describe. But mostly out of ignorance, I think a lot of people view membership at a church like a membership from Costco, or a gym, or an uh, online retailer like Amazon. Basically, you become a member by showing up, signing up, or paying up. It's a very transactional relationship, meaning an individual is paying for services. It's usually governed by some kind of contract or agreement. And if the consumer is dissatisfied with the services that they receive, or they can find better service somewhere else, they end their membership change their membership. There's many to choose from. Now, practically speaking, a covenant can sound a little familiar if it's just purely defined as an agreement or mutual obligation or contract. But biblically speaking, the origin of the Hebrew word for covenant is a little uncertain One theory is that it comes from the Hebrew word meaning to cut. Another theory is that it comes from an actual Assyrian word meaning to bind. What we know from the context of the Old Testament is that the word covenant is frequently used to describe a particular kind of agreement between God and people in which God commits himself to doing certain things if his people will also do certain things. Now the New Testament word for covenant literally means something that is put or established between parties. It can refer to a legal agreement, even a will, and it carries the connotation of a a, a special kind of agreement, different than just a normal contract. So to help us understand this, think about marriage. Marriage is 
this kind of relationship. It's a kind of contracted relationship that we, I think, would agree is different than a Costco membership, right? We didn't just show up and pay up and go, we're married, or perhaps some did. But most often we refer to marriage, most people refer to marriage as a covenant to help differentiate it from other kinds of relationships. It's unique. It's special. So covenant is defined, if you will, or perhaps best described, as a relationship that is more loving and intimate than a legal relationship, but it's more binding and enduring, even accountable, than a personal relationship. So you see, it's a little bit of both. It's a unique kind of relationship that almost feels paradoxical because it blends love and law together. Usually it's one or the other. And the more we're seeing in our world today, marriage, it's leaning towards just love with no sense of law. Now essentially, in a covenant relationship and in a covenant marriage, both parties say something incredibly unique. They actually push against the fact that I'm in this for myself. And they say something like this, by making this covenant, you are going to be more important than me. That this relationship is going to be more important than just my needs. That I'm going to be more committed to your needs than even my needs. And I'll be more committed to the relationship than just myself, even if my needs are not being met at that moment. That's a very powerful relationship. Now, for anyone who has been married, and from my personal experience, I know that these kinds of relationships are harder than others. They're really hard. And perhaps that's because they're intended and designed to be more rewarding than others. But in many ways, covenant relationships impact the deepest parts of our identity because it binds two very different people together. And it requires a tremendous amount of grace as you seek to love and serve one another. It's hard. I wish that showing grace was easy. But the example we have of showing grace is the cross. Never forget that. Oh, I'm in a covenant relationship. No, you're in a covenant relationship. Which means it's hard and incredibly rewarding. So that's the idea of what a covenant is generally. It's like, well, where did this idea come from? Well, we serve a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And having been made in His image, every person who's ever born has been made in the image of God, all of humanity, it shouldn't surprise us that one of the core values of everyone that ever lives, no matter what they believe, is like, you better keep your promise. Like everyone thinks, like even little kids, you broke your promise. Whoever said that was bad? 
It seems as if there's something in us, something we all know that like there's something about making promises and keeping promises, and I would argue it's part of the image of God in us. Now throughout Scripture, God makes all kinds of these kinds of covenants or promises. And they began in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam. And they continued at different times with Noah, familiar with that covenant and the bow in the sky and what that symbolized of what God would promise to do or not do. We'll read soon about a covenant with Abraham. You had a covenant with Moses, which is the Mosaic Law. You had a covenant with David. And so I want to take a look at one of these covenants, in particular the covenant with Abraham, just as a way to give an example of how they're modeled and what this looks like. So in Genesis 15, God establishes a covenant with Abraham to help us understand, or I'm going to use it to understand, what covenants are all about. So I'm going to read really quickly these verses It said, after these things, in chapter 15 of Genesis, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, the number of stars, if you are able to number him. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I'm going to possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and each laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age, and you shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down, And it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, the cut-up animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Ketamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God makes a covenant as we have been describing, with Abraham. He had already told him earlier, as you heard him repeat here in Genesis 12, that look, you're going to have a ton of kids, and your kids are going to bless the world. And Abraham's like, I don't have any kids. My wife is super old. I am super old, and you're telling me I have this huge family. I don't even have one. So God in Genesis 15 comes, because he's like, I'm going to have some guy in my house that's going to be my heir because you haven't given me a single kid. He's like, no, you're going to have a child. Your heir is going to be your son. 
and he makes him a covenant to confirm his promise. Abraham would have been very familiar what God was asking him to do because what he was doing in ancient times was very familiar. They wouldn't just sign contracts, right? They would cut up animals. And they would walk through as an oath to one another. Kind of like walking down the aisle. In this case, it's bloody. And in doing so, they were affirming their promise as each member of the party would walk through these things. I agree to this, and they would walk through, and I agree to this, and they would walk through. And they were also agreeing to consequences, certain consequences in this ceremony. Namely, they were binding themselves to their commitment, agreeing to be themselves cut in half or killed should they fail to fulfill their commitment. And so this is a template, if you will, of what a covenant looked like. One part was a detailed description of the commitment. Another was a description of the consequence. Another was a display of the agreement. It was a visual thing. Every covenant had some kind of sign attached to it. And it ultimately did one major thing. It defined their relationship. So everyone understood how they were in relationship to one another. And so all of these covenants that God made, whether it was Adam or Noah or Moses or Abraham or David, they all pointed, they were all temporary, and they all pointed to this great covenant that God was planning to make with His people. If you take, for example, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of the law, that was a promised blessing as long as they participated in these daily sacrifices to atone for their sins. But this always anticipated the, the great sacrifice of Christ that would come. The prophet Jeremiah talked about that. He said, look, there's going to be a new covenant that comes for my people. It will be unlike the old covenant. It will be permanent and all-encompassing. And so Jesus Christ came and He fulfilled this law of this old covenant and he established this new covenant this new agreement with his people and the old covenant we know at least in the mosaic was written on stone and the new covenant according to jeremiah is written on our hearts so we're no longer under law we're under grace we're no longer under this old covenant that served its purpose we're under a better covenant and under this new covenant we're giving Opportunity for salvation by faith as a free gift of God. And our responsibility is to exercise that faith in Christ, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf, on behalf of his bride, what the Bible calls the church, which brought an end to all these temporary sacrifices and finds its identity and hope in the one sacrifice of Christ. So covenant is part of God's story. has always been part of God's story. And this new covenant that God made, that really the covenant of Abraham pointed to, as did the covenant of Moses, as did the covenant of David, this new covenant was not just offered to this nation of Israel. It was now offered to every person from every nation. Invited to become a part, if you will, of the church. 
the people of God through faith. Now, the Greek word for church, as we begin to explore what is a membership covenant, is ecclesia, which describes an assembly of called out people. The church is an assembly of believers. They're called out of the world. The Bible calls them the bride and body of Christ, the family of God, a fellowship where the presence of God's Spirit chiefly, but not only, dwells. And it's where the wisdom of God, according to the Scriptures, is uniquely made manifest to be seen. The church is defined by belonging to God, dwelling with God, living with God together. In other words, the church is much more than just something that happens when we gather on Sundays. But it is that as well. Christ has created us by covenant to be His people. Not just individuals, but a people, a body, a bride for Himself. And Restoration Road Church is not the only expression of God's people. The church is universal and invisible and spiritual, but is also visible and local and tangible to be seen and felt. So, what is membership in a membership covenant in a local church? Well, essentially, membership covenant with a church, as I said, is a commitment to people. Membership is a church, if you will, that's making what is invisible visible. What establishes the visible union of a group of believers into a church is that they make a covenant to be the church together. And to fulfill that covenant demands that we actually gather, that we know each other, that we express ourselves in visible places. See, essentially when Anyone enters into relationship with God by grace. Through faith in the work of Jesus Christ. They're actually entering into two covenants. The first is to journey with God for the rest of their lives. And to love Him and to live for Him fully. And the second is to journey along with brothers and sisters in the same family as a local church. We believe that every Christian is called by God to be passionately committed to a local people because Christ is passionately committed to us. And there are a lot of metaphors. It's interesting that the Bible uses to describe the church. Describes Jesus' people as the bride, the flock, branches, a building, crops, nation, priesthood, household, and there's many more. And the majority of these metaphors highlight that our relationship to Him is not purely individual, but communal. In fact, four of them seem to be pretty central. 
citizen, body, temple, and family. And it's interesting to note that these images couldn't merely be used to describe the universal and invisible church because it's impossible to be a family or part of the same body with someone that you're not near. And these metaphors also couldn't be used to describe just a loose collection of individuals that just happen to be in the same place each week. God chose these particular metaphors to describe a people that are fully committed to one another by nature of their faith in Jesus Christ. But why is it so important to do this? Well, I would argue that church membership is simply an official recognition of this second covenant that I referenced. And according to Jonathan Lehman, who is the editor of Nine Marks, he describes the saying that membership is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. It's a passport. It's an announcement made in the press room of Christ's kingdom. It's a declaration that a professing individual is an official, licensed, card-carrying, bona fide Jesus representative. Now, even if this official recognition is not required, we would believe and stand on the fact that it is deeply necessary. There's much debate about the need for membership in the church. And a lot of this is governed by past negative experiences, fear of commitment, or just misunderstanding exactly what it means. So we don't want to sell you on the benefits of membership as if we want you to sign up for Costco. We want to encourage you to join a local church, ours or another, because of what it means for your life. It needs to be said that joining a church is not going to save you any more than good works, your education, your culture, your friendships, or your final contra- financial contributions are going to save you. They're not. I don't think non-Christians should seek to join a church. You should seek, if you do not yet believe, to learn more about what the Bible says a Christian is. But for those who are confessing Christians... We believe that living the Christian life alone is neither healthy nor wise. That membership is important and a blessing. By becoming a member of a local church, you are in a sense, and it is no, not exactly the same, but you are marrying into a family. And membership, I would argue, brings affirmation to your relationship with God. And it brings definition to your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. Through being a member, you're essentially declaring that this people belongs to me, and in some sense, I belong to this people. If you are a member, you are a if you will, the church in this place. You are those who we understand are members of the body. 
the parts that we can lean on. You are, from a leadership perspective, the flock of which I and other others will give an account. You wonder how you figure that out? As an elder and a pastor, I will stand before God to give an account for how I shepherded. Shepherded who? Anyone that just showed up? Or those committed members that said, I am part of this flock. Being a member certainly means having a people to celebrate with when things are good and to cry with and weep when things are bad. But it also means a mutual commitment to encourage and lovingly stir one another to remain steadfast, especially when you're tempted to stray. If you're never tempted to stray and things are always good for you, I guess you don't need membership. But really, the primary purposes of membership, four basic things. I would say one, to identify with a community that images God. In other words, God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And so by making membership, you're just reflecting who God is. Two, to clarify the blessings and responsibilities of each member. If you don't want any responsibilities, if you don't want to function as the body part God has designed, you shouldn't become a member. But there is blessings in being part of a body. There's blessings in knowing like what and how am I contributing and how are they contributing? It grows your faith. Third, to encourage consistency, accountability, love, and unity. It actually guards your faith. Others are helping you walk this difficult journey through what amounts to a meat grinder of life. And fourth, I believe membership helps you accomplish the call of all Christians, which is to proclaim our faith. Which I would argue is nearly impossible to do by yourself. Yes, you can speak the gospel to somebody, but there's so much about displaying the manifold wisdom of God than just preaching the gospel. But it is that. As we close, I want to just hit on that last point. It might be difficult to understand how you preach the gospel by becoming a member. How does covenant membership help you preach the gospel? Well, I'd like to consider once again as we close Genesis 15. See, Abraham understood what God was asking him to do, but not what God was actually about to do if you listened carefully when I read. Abraham prepared to cut animals as was requested. That was known to him. He, it was familiar to him. He understood what God was doing. They were making a contract. But if you notice in verse 17, it said, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. The presence of God, the same presence that is described as coming on top of the mountain when He made a covenant with Moses. This fiery presence 
that is God walks between the pieces and what never happens? Abram is never asked to walk through the pieces. This is an unusual covenant. And in doing just that and God alone walking through the pieces and not requiring Abram to do so, he is saying, look, if I do not fulfill my commitment as a covenant party would say, I shall be killed. And he is also saying, if you fail to fulfill your side of the covenant, I will be killed. Isn't that the cross? There's an explicit preaching of the gospel in Abraham's covenant. Something he didn't fully understand, but we certainly can. That on the cross, it's exactly what God did. I'm going to fulfill my promise, and when you fail to fulfill your commitment, I'm going to fulfill that part too. Like marriage, as I read earlier, what, did, what is God declaring to us on the cross? You are more important than me. The relationship is more important than what I need, even my life, at least the life of my son. That I'm more committed to your needs than even my needs, and more committed to this relationship than even mine or myself. Especially knowing that my desires are not being met in the moment That's not just merely a covenant commitment. That is the gospel proclaimed. God's commitment, guess what? Was based on Himself. And that's what all good covenants are. When I committed to marry my wife, the only requirement for her, for me to remain committed, was you're still breathing. And the day she dies, my covenant is over. But until then, it's based primarily not on what she does, but what I do. And she's committed the same to me. I didn't say that was easy. But I would argue it's very gospel-centered. God's commitment was based on himself. And honestly, over the last nine months, I've watched many people neglect or resign their covenant membership. Not just in our church but because their needs went unmet in their view. And I can't help but wonder if the root cause was actually a misunderstanding of what not only the church is, but what the gospel is. Christ committed to us, planning for and even knowing our faults and foibles and failures. And guess what he simply said? I love you, and I will stay with you no matter what. This is not to minimize the mistakes and abuses and things that churches make, because there are good reasons to leave a church, but it's to maximize the idea of what membership means and the covenant commitment that it represents. Because in God saying, I love you, and I'll be with you and stay with you no matter what, that's what we're saying to one another. I love you, and I'll stay with you no matter what. That's preaching the gospel. For the world to see people saying that, oh, nothing that can explain that except the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for our church. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we praise you for the commitment you have made to us, for the covenant commitment that you have made to us in Christ. That knowing our brokenness, knowing our weakness, knowing our failures, you demonstrated your love for us. And while we were in that place, you died for us. And you said, I will be with you wherever you go. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for empowering us. And not just saving us to you, Lord, but saving us to one another. I pray we will see our commitment to one another as rooted in your commitment to us. That we will take it seriously and solemnly and we will see how much it guards our faith and grows our faith and ultimately proclaims our faith. Thank you, Jesus, for your patience with us. May we have the same patience and grace towards one another. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.